My conversation today is with Sid McNary. Sid has a wide array of experience from coaching football to becoming an author, life empowerment coach, meditation teacher, and yoga instructor. Through the art of peaceful living community that Sid has developed, he helps people invite more peace into their lives. A fun fact that I recently learned about Sid is that he actually taught yoga at the White House. I just wanted to add that in there because I think it's super fun. Sid, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited for it. So thank you for having me. So you were a college football coach for a while. Now you're a meditation teacher, you're a yoga instructor, and your whole life is really devoted to helping people live a more peaceful life. And I know that's a big part of what you do now, but I'm really curious about the transition from coaching college football to now focusing on yoga, focusing on meditation and peace and kind of what you're doing now. Could you share a little bit about how that transition happened? Well, the transition, it was really organic. I mean, everything in my life, I've kind of just been called forward into where people ask me to, Hey, will you do this? And then I do it. And then the next thing you know, it becomes, goes from kind of being a hobby to being my thing. Initially, when I was in coaching football, I I had to heal my own body. In 95, I had my right ankle fused and I was getting shot up in order to walk the sideline as a coach. And so then they, they went in and did surgery. And a lady once saw me limping, was like, you know, you can heal your body. This is back in 95 when no one was talking about yoga. And so she turned me on to yoga, just some random lady at a gym and got me to go buy Rodney Yee videos. And later on, I I went to study with him and things like that. That was the beginning. And then when I was finishing coaching, I was at Morgan State University and, and we had a team that was the second most injured team in the conference. And the coaches realized that oh, wait a minute, Sid somehow moves like he moves. And, you know, at that time I was in my 30s. And and so they were like, he races the players. None of us are doing that. Hey, how can you help the team? And so that's, that was the first part was me learn figuring out how to get it for my team and then opening up to teaching it because the players wanted me to teach it as opposed to my second wife to teach. And, and so all those things just opened up and as more people called it forward, it became a need for me to open a yoga studio so I could put people in one place. I think on the surface, football and yoga, and even with meditation, they seem to be very opposite ends of the spectrum when you think about it. But then when you really consider it, I would imagine there's so much overlap and and ways that you can use both of those things to kind of help each other. And especially with the mental game, not only with yoga, but then also meditation being such a big part of being successful in sports, being successful just in any high stress field, the overlap in your body with yoga, but then the overlap with the mental game in meditation, how can athletes or even people in high stress fields that might not be somebody that you're directly working with, how can they use meditation or yoga to improve their skills and be more successful in what they do? You know, what I'd say is, is first, I'd say most people don't recognize that they are really practicing yoga and meditation in so many ways. People go to church or go to synagogue and all of that. And that's devotion. That's part of the yoga sutras. When someone is working on their own body, they're actually doing yoga all the time in sports. They're stretching. They may not stop and call it yoga. So I think the first thing is for people to recognize that they're already doing it. Now, if they did it more consciously, and had more awareness around it, it could benefit them a lot more. Everyone talks about getting in the flow, in the zone, in sports. And getting in the flow, getting in the zone 
that's actually peace. I've never heard anybody say, I'm in the zone and I'm so distracted. No, that's not the zone. Everybody knows that. That that mental part of not being able to quiet the mind, get to peace, and then they have access to everything. So that's what when I'm working with athletes, it's it's all about that. I mean, I may call it the zone because they hear that. It's easier for them to di- digest that word versus peace, because especially in football, most people aren't thinking that they're actually moving with peace. Yet, if you aren't, someone else is blocking you, someone else is, is keeping you from the play, you're probably dropping the ball because you're thinking about everybody in the stands or however those things go. It's really that accessing peace is part of getting to the zone. So I think if athletes get into that level of communication you can use that really in anything you know the more someone gets that level of peace in their body they then have actually have access to love which is everything so that's kind of how it works when i'm talking to athletes for sure so then can meditation be something that people can do wherever or does that have more of a specific definition because like when i think of meditation i think of sitting down working on being really conscious in my thoughts I guess, what is the definition of meditation then from your perspective? Well, for me, I mean, I started meditating at eight. And so it was a lot easier to start then because I didn't have all the distractions in my mind. To me, meditation is part of the communication with something greater than myself. So praying, talking, speaking, Uh, mantras, all those things. That's how I speak, right? That's how how I communicate from me to whatever you want to call it, the source of things. How I listen is meditation. So yes, it does start. And I think, you know, I start each day with an hour to two hours of meditation so that I can not only listen, which is my meditation part of it, yet create the mantras and speaking to the source of things so that I'm in communication the rest of the day. You know, eventually that looks like most people think of meditation, like you said, sitting on a cushion, sitting, sitting still, being in that. I'm in meditation all day. I'm listening all day. What is it that this person's bringing forward? Right now, you've got the birds behind me. Some For some reason, they want to they talk to you right now. All of those things I'm listening to and even listening to myself so that I know what I'm creating out into the world in so many ways. Yeah. So do you still do like sitting on a cushion meditation or do you do just kind of what you just shared about the everyday? I mean, I, I like I said, I wake up, I go and get my glass of water with lemon and then I go sit on the cushion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I started out that way so that I'm kind of programming myself to go forward into the day. You know, once I've started that way, then all of a sudden my mind is running the program that I'm giving it versus my mind running all the programs of everything around, you know, the ongoing same story over and over and over in in the media or in marketing. If I'm not able to see myself, those things are just running unconsciously. So I, that's part of it for me, for sure. Yeah. I know a lot of people who have started and really struggled to meditate, including myself in this question and this sense, I'm talking about the the sitting on the cushion traditional of what you would kind of be thinking about. And like, my theory is that I think meditation sometimes seems so hard because we almost expect it to be easy. We expect 
to have it come natural to us that like the goal of meditation is just to automatically turn off our thoughts as if our default setting should be to have an empty mind. And I think I really failed to understand what meditation actually is, which I think you just explained beautifully. And I thought about this before, because like I said, I've, I've struggled with this and I've had this perception that even things like a daily gratitude practice, or like what you said, just, just noticing and incorporating that into your daily life. And with meditation, even the traditional type of meditation, I assume that it should have been easy. And because that's not always the case, especially when you're starting out, it can make it even more difficult to feel encouraged to keep doing it. I know you said that you started when you're eight, when maybe it was a different time in your life than if you're starting when you're 35 and have, you know, a, a bunch of responsibilities. But what was it like for you when you first started, even considering the fact that you were a lot younger and probably in a different time in your life? Well, I can remember those days because it was, I still use it. I remind my inner child, so to say, every time I go to sit down, be more still than ever before. And that was, that's how it was. It was really just about my soccer coach trying to get eight-year-olds that he was traveling around the world to play, to sit and be still, <laughs> you know, like you got to be still so that I can actually tell you what we need to do. And so I remind myself of that at the beginning of meditation and then over time, when I started to hear people say, oh, this is about mindfulness. And, no, not really. It's not about making my mind more full. It's really about emptying my mind, which for me looks like letting go of the need to create a thought. So when I'm meditating, one of the beginning of the foundation of the system that I teach is to know how to watch the space between my thoughts. It's not a matter of stopping my thoughts. It's just seeing my thought as if I were watching a movie and letting it pass. And now sitting in the gap, the space in between, in between the thoughts. And the more that I just sit with those things, then that gap continues to grow. And I think of the gap as the greatest anticipated peace possible. The bigger the gap gets, the more peace that I can grow inside. How long did it take to actually get really good at it? Well, I, I honestly, I, I feel like I can barely remember it being anything other than sit still. My dad used to play the silence game with us as kids. So you won if you were silent long. You know, that was just, that's the silence game. So when my coach took over and said, all right, we're going to sit and meditate. This is what it looks like. You guys are going to be still, close your eyes and just be here. So it was always pretty easy in that sense because I've had that in my life. A lot of people struggle in the beginning and really they struggle because they think they have to do something when it's like, okay, an eight-year-old isn't thinking I have to do anything other than what is said. And that's okay. You know, and we were all good at it. Like, really, I, I can't remember anybody jumping up because you would have had to run. You know, we had consequences where most people aren't even thinking that there is a consequence to this chaotic mind. Yet the consequence really is losing a life. You know, life all of a sudden, the biggest losses, like the people that I work with, the first thing I help them do is quiet their mind. Because if, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I need you to work with my kid who seems like they're going to commit suicide, it's like, okay, we got to stop that thought. That, that's the number one thing. How do we get out of that thought? How do we get out of it? find peace and that thought's already gone. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily hard unless someone's making it hard, mm -hmm. you know, 
as soon as they know they can make it easy, it becomes easy. Do you think if you were an eight-year-old in 2022, or I guess, oh, I guess it's 2023 right now. Uh, do you think if you're an eight-year-old in this year, it would be as easier, kind of the same process? Or do you think it's getting harder for kids the way that our world is evolving? I think what's getting harder, because I actually work with kids from three, like we have a summer camp uh, for kids that we aren't going as low as three just because we're not yet. I get to work with kids that are three years old because my wife's a counselor. What I'll say is that people, they are the example for kids. So when I come in and I've got this great video of these kids, they come and they just sit down because I know if I'm still, that's just, they're just imitating. It's rare that a kid is like at three years old, I'm dictating this show. Well, they're only doing that if it's chaotic at home, you know, otherwise they're, they're looking at the adult as the leader and they're, okay, everyone sit, be still. And one of them, they usually look and they're like, all right, is he going to move? If I move, is he going to react? What's, am I getting the intention? No, we're just going to be still. And they kind of, it happens pretty quickly. So I, I feel like in this day of 2023, you just have to be the example. It's not necessarily hard for kids. They're just having an example that's chaotic. Do you think there's more chaos than there was say 20 years ago or a hundred years ago now? I definitely, well, there's more distractions. You know, people are distracted with their phone, with their iPad. You know, I, I constantly am reminded I'm not uh, one of the computer owners. I'm not going to use his name because I'm not a super fan. Yet he only gives his kids 15 minutes a day on their, on their gadgets. Like you get 15 minutes. And yet, most kids are walking around with it all day. Like maybe schools should just say no phones. When you come to school, no phones. Some parents, and then then you have parents that would freak out like, oh my God, I can't get a hold of my kid. Well, what you know they're at school. <laughs> like so for me, it's it's the distractions, and it's not even those things. It's how we're letting those things, they're not grabbing us and saying, pick me up right now. We're allowing those things. We're dictating chaos for ourselves. We can stop that anytime. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the the computer owner, as we'll we'll call it. I think we should really take a look at what the actions of the people who know more or are higher up in those positions, how they're actually living their lives, because they have a lot of information and know probably a lot of those impacts. So going back to parents, do you have any advice for parents, or I guess parents or anybody who's technically an example? And how we can be better examples of peace and of being calm and, and allowing other people to see that. Yeah, for me, it's constantly knowing that everything that I look at is a reflection of me. So like here, you're listening to me. I'm listening to you. If I were cutting you off all the time, that's how it would go. You'd start cutting me off in order to get what you need to get in. And so I, I'm looking at things as a reflection of me. So for me, with parents, with teachers, if the children aren't being what you think they should be, you got to become it first. Become it, and they'll see the example, and they'll start to imitate a different example. When I'm teaching a yoga class, I, I'm fortunate that I've had a yoga room with a three-year-old and an 86-year-old, and all the people in between. 
And the mom that brought the three-year-old, she was like, okay, set your mat up right next to me. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm here to teach. Put them right behind you. And you just show them how to practice yoga and they're going to do it. And the kid did it. But whenever they're next to them, the kid's always looking to their side. Then the mom's looking to the side or the dad. They think that's what yoga is. Look at me. That No, the imitation can be done in such a, a profound way that others start to pick it up. And that I think that's the most important thing. Whomever, as a leader, be the example of what you want to see in the world. So you mentioned how as a result of doing that, you get peace from that. And I know that peace is a big thing that you talk about. I would like to kind of dive into that a little bit. But before I do that, can you just define peace for me a little bit to make sure that we're on the same page and kind of have a good foundation before we dive in? So what is peace? In defining peace, I want to kind of give an example. If someone were to look at the middle line, okay, we've got a line going across the middle. That's peace. Peace is the foundation. Peace is the steadiness that gives birth to love. When someone is not at peace, they fall into the illusion that is below that line of peace. When they're in peace, they have access to everything love. So peace is, for me, you and everyone knows this, you're either at peace 100% or you don't have peace. So the peace is, is uh, the creator, the space that births everything. And so that that's really what peace is. Sometimes people think, oh, in the definition of peace, they'd probably say calm. No, that's calm. That's not peace. Peace is the steadiness that gives birth to everything else. So when did that realization come for you in your life? When did your desire to bring peace into your life start? In 2008, I had started to really feel peace. The first time I'd say I'd go back to 2001, I was coaching football and and wanted more peace. And I, I had been doing yoga now for six years and peace started settling in. And I started to realize where I didn't have it. I think that's one of the easiest things to find about peace is know where you don't have it. Start to get it. And I just happened to, by the time I got to 2008, I had gotten to a place where I, where I knew what peace really was like. So I wanted it everywhere. Uh, wanted it in my marriage. So then I got divorced twice. <laughs> uh, I wanted it in football. So I, I, it wasn't coming. So I left football, all these different things. And when I went to, when I finally got it, I went to sit on the mountain for peace in my family, peace in my community. Because I had it, but I could realize that when I had it and other people didn't, it was harder for me to keep because I would move with an argument with somebody or all these different things. So then I wanted to go sit for other people as well. And sitting through Native American vision quests, sitting on the mountains without food or water, four days, three nights, and and getting my native name, that became a commitment. You know, that's when it became, all right, peace is it. I'm going to commit to peace no matter what. And as I defined the the essence of peace in the beginning as the foundation to the birth of love, when I realized that I wanted to have that all the time, it it doesn't necessarily look the way people think of peace. Not always. You know, for instance... If needed to protect myself to to stay in peace, 
that may look different than most people would think of peace. Yet that's that's just the, what it is, you know. Peace looks like, oh, my kid's about to go burn their hand and I have to grab them quickly in order to keep them from burning their hand on the stove. Well, am I at peace with it or not? Because if you're not at peace with it, you might just be like, oh, I need to stay calm. Now the kid just grabbed the stove. So I think it's important to know that peace is just the birthplace of love. That's a that's a really good way to put it. It was a it was a real mountain, right? That you went and sat on. Oh yeah, it's in the Poconos. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, it's Native American customs. So someone's always leading. Uh, like I lead people on vision quest. My grandmother led me through. You can do four in a lifetime as the custom. So I did four in five years. It's a challenge because you're praying. You've got 405 prayers that you have to do and make these bundles that create a circle. You sit in the circle and and meditate and, and do a lot of different custom things that happen with that. And what you need comes. It's a it's a journey for sure. And a lot of different things that way. And how long was it? Uh, four days, three nights. So you're literally out without food or water, just sitting, walking in, in your prayer circle and and sitting in meditation, reflecting. You take out, like I took a sleeping bag, a tarp just in case it stormed, which it did one time. And that's all you have, you're just out. I took a journal just to make sure that I remembered things that that came up. Yeah, huh. lots of things, I mean. A cool concept. So I was reading my devotional this morning and um, it's a Christian devotional. So some things might look a little bit different than in the text of another religious book or another religious practice. But one thing that stood out to me is it said in there that trust is the channel through which my peace flows into you. So trust is the channel through which my peace flows into you. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, first of all, it stood out to me because it, it said peace. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. We're talking about it today. But then it stood out to me because it brought up another concept that made me consider the role that trust plays into being able to have peace as well. And I think, you know, we can all agree that when there's uncertainty, there's chaos. And even when you look at the origin of stress, there's a lot of times that comes from a place of uncertainty. So I think one of the biggest examples of this, I think one of the most, the easiest example to pull out is COVID. So during the height of the pandemic, right, nobody knew what was going to happen as a result of COVID. And we knew it wouldn't be good. We knew that the the results were going to be, or we at least, at least assumed that they weren't going to be ideal, but we didn't really know what. And the people that I noticed had the greatest peace were people who had a strong belief in a greater power. And I'm saying that from a g- very general sense, you could take out any religion. And I know you yourself, I don't think you identify with one specific religion, correct? No, peace is my religion. Yeah. yeah. So regardless of what you want to call it, or regardless of the religion that you have, you know, and going back to the COVID example, everybody had the same amount of uncertainty and nobody knew it was going to happen. And especially with people who had lost loved ones or face some really difficult challenges, I just, I couldn't imagine how hard it would be to keep the peace in, in moments like that and just a million times harder to, to keep that. But regardless of what challenges people went through, I noticed that people who had those challenges happen to them, the people who had trust in something that was greater than themselves 
tended to have higher levels of peace. And I, I didn't do a study on this. I just took kind of the input that I that I learned from having conversations with people. And like I said, what I found is that people with the trust in something greater than themselves had higher levels of peace. So I want to hear your perspective on this. Like, do you think trust in something greater than yourself is necessary or beneficial to achieving a higher state of peace? I definitely think it's beneficial. Is it the only way? Likely not. One thing I'll say for myself is knowing the laws of how things operate, seeking the truth, you know, that old statement, seek the truth and the truth will set you free. I like to find truths that I can lean on. One is uh, everything comes from a thought. I've discovered that for myself. No one actually told me that. I kept going till I realized, man, like here it is, I can press the mute button. If I don't think about it, the mute button doesn't get prepped. If I, if I don't think about turning on the lights, the lights don't just magically come on. Everything comes from a thought. And so knowing that, I can trust that there's, there's nothing more to it for me. You know, when it comes to the space of COVID, the thought that the, there's something greater than myself and that it can handle anything is the thought that gives me peace. It's the thought though. So now what I've learned having uncovered that truth of a couple truths that I've uncovered, now all of a sudden there becomes a responsibility of watching my thoughts and saying, okay, what's the thought that's giving me this over and over again? I trust the truth. And when it's found, the truth sets you free. I just happen to find a piece of truth that's like, okay, not Sid's truth, right? Sid's truth can be argued, argued over and over and over again, because it hasn't yet usually echoed all the way through that everyone stands in it. Yet in the Bible, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Well, do I need to know anything else? How does the word even show up? Who's the one thinking? How is it thinking? Who's it talking to? Well, I'm the one thinking. So in the beginning was the word. Everything that I look at is truly showing up because I'm the one thinking it. So if I don't like it, I go back to what thoughts am I doing that are creating? Using the pandemic example, people will bring up certain things to say, you know, why and bring up their own thoughts and opinions and kind of trying to create truth. Do you think that subconsciously people putting that out there or trying to make predictions for certain things is people's subconscious trying to create a state of peace by turning the uncertainty into something more certain when they when they create a reason for it? Yeah, I think everybody craves to get back to peace. Like a baby instantly. Baby gets hungry, screams, wants back to peace. Like, feed me, feed me so I can get rid of this pain in my body, right? Everybody, I think that's innate. It's something that is just there. And a dog barks. A dog, a wolf. I, I own a pet wolf. A wolf. Wait, howled. what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For eight years. She would howl like crazy when we would leave. A wolf knows that when the pack is gone, they howl so that they can get back to the pack. But our neighbors would be like, man, Shiva howls all the time when you're gone. I'm like, no, she doesn't. She's so quiet. She's that because we were there. You know, so I think everything has a piece in it and it wants that. It craves that. And so 
the more I have access to peace, then I actually have access to what we call love, which is the expression of everything when it's in our goodness. But everything's from love. Yeah, that's cool about the wolf, too. Do you think that a world that is 100% peaceful would be ideal? Say, for example, there was no disruption of peace. But I'm wondering, because if everything is peaceful, then how are we able to tell peace from not peace? And I think that's one, one part of it. How do we tell when we have peace if we don't really have things that aren't peaceful? But then another thing too is, is, is part of peace in the human experience, the journey of getting closer to peace. And does peace come from that? So I'm wondering if, say, for example, you could flip a switch and make the world, everybody in it, everything in it, 100% peaceful, do you think that would be an ideal solution? Well, what I'll say is I'll use Christianity, heaven on earth. How do we create heaven on earth? We have to find peace. Now, peace is not dictated by war or not war. Am I at peace with it? There's a difference. I can be in the midst of chaos. You can have a storm, and at the eye of the storm is still peace. The eye of the storm, they say, is so still, right? Scientists have studied that. The eye is nothing, but everything's moving around a tornado like crazy. So peace doesn't look like dead. That would be dead, right? Mm -hmm. Peace looks like being okay with the fluctuations. So world gets to 100% peace. See, we're starting to move towards peace. But when the world hits 100% peace, it may dip down at some point to 98 or whatever. The sooner we can return back to peace, then the chaos doesn't live as long. And we may not even notice it. I mean, yeah, right now talking to you, I'm sitting here at 100% peace. Great conversation, easy to go. Thank you for that. And uh, and when I leave, I'm gonna be careful with my words because I know it's creating. When I leave, I'm gonna keep peace. If for some reason something moves, I'm gonna return to peace. And that's that's where I think we can move as a species is learning how to get back to peace. Because it's okay if it if it goes, how do we get back? The moment that we notice that we don't have peace is the moment that we get an opportunity to get back to peace. So when I'll just use uh, an example of two neighbors have an argument. As soon as one notices they don't have peace, the argument stops and they can get back to it. And I think that's an important part of knowing how to operate with peace in the laws of the universe. Yeah. Knowing too, that peace isn't a problem-free life. You know, you talk about the difference between having a completely peaceful world and a completely problem-free world. I think a completely problem-free world would not be peaceful. I don't know. Have you, are you familiar with the concept of, of toughening or anti-fragility? No. Okay. It's a really cool concept. And I know it's getting away from the definition of peace and more to talking about having problems versus not having problems. 
anti-fragility and toughening are both very similar concepts, I would say, but I would really recommend kind of looking into the concept of itself. Uh, there was one study that was done in 2010 that looked into the relationship between adversity and well-being. And what they found is that people who experienced too little of an amount of challenges had actually sent very similar results to the people who faced too many. What they also found is that the people who had some challenges in their life actually had the fewest amount of problems and were actually the happiest. And so beforehand, like, you know, maybe you'd think that the more problems that you have, the worse your life is. But I think what we can learn from this study is that the ideal life isn't a problem free life at all. And as a matter of fact, those two sides of it, whether you have too little problems or too many problems can actually look really similar. So the relationship between the amount of problems that we have and the quality of our life isn't linear. And in fact, I think if I go back to algebra, it would be like a, an upside down parabola. I would like to say though, that are you familiar with the ACEs adverse childhood experiences? A little bit. Yes. Okay. So like that, I think might be a little bit different because when you're talking about lifetime adversity, that's going to look different than childhood trauma. So the ACEs essentially is the more traumatic experiences for, for childhood traumatic experiences that tends to increase the likelihood of chronic health problems and mental illness and things like that. So I think that is an exception that I would like to just address because, you know, I don't want to get adverse life experiences and adverse traumatic childhood experiences kind of co-mingled because those are two completely different studies. But what I think is really interesting is there is a sweet spot for the problems that we have in our life and having a problem-free life is not that it's going to make it harder to be more peaceful, but is likely going to be not as ideal of a life as you would think. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then also on top of your thoughts on that, if somebody's going through a difficult challenge right now, what would you recommend maybe to them to help bring more peace into their life? Awesome. So first um, I'll say I, I, when going to sit on the mountains, I was told by an elder, look around you, a foot around, sit still, look a foot around you and everything that happens in the universe you'll see it happening right there. So when I think of this peace or not peace, when on the surface I could have peace, stillness in a pond, that's the surface of peace. And it could be there so much that eventually the pond starts to smell, it stinks. In order to have life, it has to be rattled a little bit, it has to move. So even though I own peace for myself, I know that I have to move it. I have to go rattle it a little bit in my body, at least, you know, like I can't sit here and just be like, Oh, I'm at peace sitting on the couch forever. Well, eventually long enough, I wouldn't be able to get up and move. Right. Because my, my body would atrophy and all those different things. So it's important to know that. Yeah. Peace has nothing to do with the lifeline that goes up and down. Peace is the flat line, actually. It's the flat line across. Now, I don't want to be dead, so I'm not just going to stay in the flat line. But that is true peace. Everything's birthed from that flat line. Uh, so that's how I look at that. When it comes to how someone can capture this for themselves, that, that's listening to this and like, man, I really wish I had some peace right now. First thing I'd say is commit to peace and really make the commitment, which then looks like every time that someone commits to peace, go try to live it for a day. Once you hit a day, live it for a week. Once you hit a week, live it for a month. Once you hit a month, live it for a year, 
make it your life. And it starts with a, a real commitment. If you're just interested in it, then the moment that something shows up to lose your peace, you'll go chase that. This is just the way it is. I'm interested in having peace in my relationship. Oh, you just did something I don't like. So now I'm yelling. You didn't really want peace. You wanted to yell. So really staying in that and making that commitment. The second thing that's pretty easy is for someone to shift consciously. So if someone noticed they don't have peace, stand up, stand up. And now we're going to take seven conscious breaths. So the first thing is notice where you are. Oh, I'm angry. Okay, stand up, stand in the anger, notice it, be with it. And now, where would you want to go? And they may say, I want to step into peace. Now take seven deep conscious breaths. After the seventh breath, step forward and step into peace and own it. You know, that's, that's an easy way. My grandma gave me that a long time ago. Grandson, when you're losing it, here's how you can step into peace. Own it. Know where you are. Breathe into it. Now step into it differently. That's very good practical advice. And that kind of leads me into at the end of the episode, I have the guest create a challenge. So, I mean, that could be a really great challenge, but do you have a habit that people could take and do today to get closer to what we're talking about? Well, here's, here's one. I, I'm going to, just because I gave those two, even though I, I'd like to challenge everybody to go and, and commit to peace, commit to peace and see how that opens up for whomever in their life. Then also, knowing that one truth that I uncovered is everything comes from a thought. I know that the thoughts that I have before I fall asleep is the first thought I'll have when I wake up, which means in between that, I'm thinking about that last thought over and over and over again. So here's the challenge. For the next seven days before going to sleep, get a glass of water, fill it up, the glass, with water, and then... Hold the water before they go to sleep. Look at the water and say what you want to have the next day. If it's peace, great. Say it seven times or whatever it is. It could be seven different things. And then put the water down, go to sleep, wake up, drink the water. What they'll start to notice is as they go to pick up the water, they will remember what they thought about before. So that's my challenge. Seven days. Nothing more, nothing less, just seven days. If they want, Once they realize that, whoa, my life is really showing up like that, then you might want to do it more than seven days. But I'm challenging just seven days. I love it. Thank you. And, you, and do you do that every night as well? Yeah. Here's my water. I fill it up twice. Or every, every time you drink water, do you do that? Yes. I tell her what I, I tell the water what I want it to be. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's my grandmother prays over everything. So and then I, you know, st- saw the study, Dr. Emoto and water and how to program water. And I'm like, hold up. Everything's got water. I got to pray on it, especially if I'm putting it inside. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Pretty much can search my name anywhere. Sid McNary. Uh, soon they'll be able to go to sidmcnary.com. And yet people can also go to aopl.life or artofpeacefulliving.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the conversation. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Look forward to some other time. 